out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Yes, we are. Well, not really. This is David Eastall. This is the C86 Show. Once again, bringing you the finest in indie pop. As you know, I like a special guest. This week, it is the turn of Claire Moore, the Australian musician, songwriter, arranger, producer, performer, who was in The Moodists, plus um, in various combos with Dave Graney and the Coral Snakes. And for those who are paying attention, she and he have just released an album this year, 2019, One Million Years DC. Check it out. It might just change your life. This is the interview that I did a few weeks ago with Claire, where we were talking about life, love, poetry. I was babbling on about the clocks changing. It was fascinating. And then mentioned about that interesting subject that was the 80s and also the amount of bands that were about. And this was Claire's response. Claire, it's over to you. Yeah. Oh, well, um, yeah, I guess so. Well, music was still incredibly um, popular, especially live music, you know, then. Um, <clears throat> there wasn't a lot of choices. Uh, you know, I remember going to London and the, the television went off at 11 o'clock and going out to live gigs was really, really popular there, you know. Yeah. Um, and so it, it's uh, after that, you know, with the, the internet coming on and um, just sort of people being able to sit at home and, and watch movies and things like that, people sort of stopped going out as much, I think. Yes. Maybe. Well, it's also quite interesting because, you know, it's like, like now people are sort of putting up posters from gigs and club nights that they used to happen around the place, you know, and every every city in this, obviously London had quite a few places. And um, I just couldn't believe how many gigs and how cheap going out was back in those days. I mean, obviously, pound fifty was a bit more, you know, it was a bit of money. But it, at the same time, you saw three really good pants for, for sort of not that much, really. Yeah, there were a lot of venues around London. It was great. I mean, the problem was getting there and the other problem was getting home. <laughs> so so a lot of them finished early too, which was actually quite good because you could, you'd had to be on the last tube. And if you were still playing when the last tube was going, the place would just empty. <laughs> yes. You know, obviously, you know, so that was a good thing. I quite like it when, when um, you know, bands play earlier. I do really do like it now when that happens. But, uh, yeah, like we go back to London, um, uh, we go back to Europe sometimes and uh, we find that the, especially the major centres like Paris and London have hardly any gigs, it seems. You know, it's really quite difficult uh, to um, get get work in those places or, or find a venue to play and even just one gig. And even um, even though London's such a huge place, um, you get the, the story of you can't play anywhere else in London over that weekend. <laughs> you think, wow, there's like 10 million people here or something. That's weird. Uh, don't you think? You know, it's, it's just sort of, uh, yeah, the whole scene has become so much smaller. Yes. Well, like, absolutely. No, it's, it's something that's really doing these interviews has made me sort of appreciate a lot more about what happened back then. And one of the things that, that was kind of very evident now, especially, was that you had those gatekeepers, you had the music press, like the NME Sounds Melody Maker, um, and then you had John Peel. And if, if you got a sort of a review in one of the papers or you got a play on John Peel, it kind of gave <laughs> you this enormous kind of like audience well I say enormous I mean John Peel was still quite cult but now in looking at it it was kind of like it gave it gave people especially in 
the the UK and a bit of Europe, this kind of amazing sort of uh, yeah, sort of like you you hit the right people who were into those kind of quirky bands. You know, we were I didn't realise we were, we were quite a committed load of people, both the musicians and also the fans. Mm, yeah, definitely. And everyone in Europe uh, looked to those magazines and John Peel as well. So if you could uh, get into those, you were you were really free to go anywhere in Europe as well. So touring in Europe, that, that's what made that possible for us is getting involved through, um, through um, yeah, getting onto John Peel. Um, you know, so, yeah, that was a really important thing for us. We were really lucky to be able to latch on to a lot of those things. Like in Australia, they didn't uh, recognise independent bands back then at all. It was all mainstream. And if you were a bit weird and arty like most of, most of us, you know, um, go-betweens and Nick Cave and, you know, Moodus and Triffids and, and you just had to leave the country. You just, you know, you could go only so far and uh, but in Britain, um, yeah, independent music or sort of more indie, under the radar bands were recognised on a national, you know, um, radio show like John Peel. It was amazing. Yes, the BBC. Yes, and and you know, I mean, even though the figures were sort of relatively small to daytime radio, they were they were still. It wasn't just the the you know they were. A, um, you know, they they still were quite reasonable, especially for, you know, if you looked at them today, they're still kind of, they would be very good. It was just like when you looked at, you know, against people like Steve Wright or Bruno Brooks or any of those, you know, people that, you know, his his listening ship was quite small. But, and this is something I was try, stumbling trying to make the point, is that those people who listened to it and me being one of them, we were recorded, a lot of people would record the John Peel show every day yeah. on a TDK, you know, trusty DK, you know, 90-minute uh, cassette and then listen to it. So, we, you know, you really consumed what was being played in a, in a lot of depth, really. Oh, absolutely. Things like the fall, the things that he played all the time, like half man, half biscuit <laughs> and the fall. I just remember him saying those words so many times and I thought, God, this is incredible. Like it's a it's, it's pretty much like a commercial radio station, isn't it, BBC One? Yes. Um, even though it's not. And just it was just so incredible, so different to hear. That would never happen. It still would never get played here. Yes. <laughs> well, I think he, took, he also took great delight in in playing those people like Napalm Death and Extreme Noise Terror or the Bundu Boys or Gregory Isaacs, knowing that, you know, and, and the early public enemy, you know, it was it was like at the time, I think, you know, the controllers of the BBC probably freaked out every time they listened to his playlist because it was like it wasn't sort of Tina Turner and Dire Straits and Duran Duran, you know, it was quite... Mm -hmm quite aggressive and quite out there and I think that's why I used to record it so religiously because it would require two or three listens on that cassette to kind of yeah. work out what what it was you heard because it was just too much for the brain to cope with really I mean I know it sounds a bit pretentious but you know Napalm Death and you know those sort of bands you know the first mm. time you thought what the hell was that you know three you know was it five seconds of a noise you thought interesting John I like your stuff and but then he, you know if it wasn't for him we'd have never come across the hard-ons and like you said the Triffids yeah. and Nick Cave and and the go-betweens and then obviously in other places you had the chills from New Zealand but it was like okay this is all very good we we will consume all this as, as a fan 
Oh yeah, we were very lucky. It was like a, the highway out of out of Australia, straight there. If you could get onto that, which uh, we were, we were able to do. We also got in to do. You know, he did the peel sessions. We did a few of those too. So you get these get to go to Maida Vale and record in an amazing you know studio. Um, yeah, I think the the BBC because it's different to the 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 you know the ABC we have here in that they have licensing fees they did have sort of money and I think that they I don't know maybe maybe they just let John Peel kind of go off of you know and see what happens they was they seem to be um I don't know do you think they would have looked at him because he was on also very late at night wasn't he I, I just think maybe they kind of sort of thought, oh, that's a cool thing to have on our station. Let's just leave him to it. Yes, I, I, I think there was a lot of that, that um, mm-hmm. almost like it's quite tricky to know what to do with. So that that's probably why they kind of used to change his kind of show a little bit of trying to shove it around a bit. But then I think over the years up to when he died, they realised they started to appreciate it a bit more of what he represented and what he was doing for the industry. I think they kind of realised how important... It, it was to give bands that kind of exposure because, you know, it was all fine, you know, Duran Duran and Spandau Bally, but they, you know, they were selling millions, you know, they didn't need all that extra, they, they didn't need the evening as well as all the daytime, you know, exposure on the BBC. So, yeah, I think, I think they struggled, but I think they, you know, I don't know. It, I think at times they probably thought, God, I wish we didn't have him because it's quite an awkward thing. But at the same time, there were a few people who probably could see the worth in it. And if it wasn't for him, all those kind of bands, you know, which created quite sort of memorable songs would have just never, you know, would have just never happened really. Yeah, some of them were, became huge. I mean, it wasn't just because of him, because of Melody Maker and that, but, you know, like um, the Smiths and, um, you know, Bjork's band and, like, some of those groups became as big as <laughs> some of those other ones almost, don't you think? Oh, yeah, and you, and you had the famous story of Pulp and Jarvis who had, yeah. a, you know, took 10 years and it was kind of John Peel that, you know, helped to sort of keep them going. And, and you know, bands like The Fall obviously... You know, I mean, they would have kept going, but they probably wouldn't have been quite so successful, <clears throat> which would have been a tricky one. But look, just going back <laughs> just slightly, did, um, you know, what was your early years of, of playing music? I mean, how did you sort of develop a musical world and career? Well, I started, <coughs> um, yeah, I, I just sort of started uh, playing at school um, when I was 14, playing drums. And we had a teacher at the uh, Catholic school I went to, who, the nun, yeah, who was very um, up with the, the time. She was quite young herself and she... Uh, she was a funky a, nun. She was a funky nun and she got a whole lot of groovy sort of young jazz musicians and rock musicians to come and teach us how to play actual rock music. It was when Jesus Christ Superstar and those that type of those things were happening, you know, and then yes. it was going to church was sort of supposedly groovy. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, so I, I was about 14 at this school at the time and she and she actually, um, yeah, she became her own, uh, quite a big celebrity because she had a, a, a worldwide hit with a, um, a song called The Lord's Prayer and um, I think it was a, I think it was a hit in England. It was a hit in America and stuff. Anyway, so it was sort of strange coming from Adelaide, which is this really small town in Australia, and having um, playing. Oh, I used to play drums 
with her at a, uh, the cathedral and uh, at Rock Mass and it used to get like a thousand people coming along. It was just became really like she became like a pop star um, because of this, um, yeah, this single and album she eventually put out and she put out a couple of albums actually. Um, yeah, so I, she was really encouraging and it, it became for me like an ordinary or, you know, like a normal thing to instead of doing sport, play drums and be in a band and learn how to rehearse. And so I sort of got into that at a really, you know, about 14 and then, uh, you know, left school early because all I really wanted to do was be in a band and eventually met up with, uh, played with some other bands in Adelaide and then in about uh, when I was about 18, ran, uh, met up with Dave Graney and Steve Miller, who were in the Moodus. Yes. And started playing with them. And then we, we got out of Adelaide because Adelaide was a bit small gig-wise, you know, we were too weird for the, the locals. But, um, you know, it was still a pretty good scene over there. There were still a few venues and stuff. But that that's sort of how I started out. I was just always wanted to do it and then I had this – opportunity which even though I you know I wasn't too keen on the music it was still a good way to learn to actually play and be in a band and you know she took it all fairly seriously so it was good. Brilliant and because I've got sort of indie pop down of the years between sort of 83 to 87 which is basically the years of the Smiths but you came along before that didn't you which was kind of the very early 80s which in this in this kind of environment we often talk about the post-punk period. So were, so did you, yeah, because a lot of bands at that time were people like the Gang of Four and Peel and, um, mm-hmm. yes, kind of quite were, angular. Oh, they were quite, you know, with a slightly awkward staccato kind of vibe to it, you know. So we're, yeah, yeah so the Moodus were obviously sort of there before the indie world, you know, what I put down as the indie world had begun. So were you part of any scene at that time? Yeah, well, when we we left um, when we left Melbourne, um, sorry, when we left Adelaide and moved to Melbourne, we got in on the um, the kind of the post punk scene that was around a place called the Seaview Ballroom, which was in St Kilda, which is a seaside place where um, pretty much the the young people had the run of this Victorian enormous Victorian sort of um, hotel, <laughs> and um, uh, the boys next door and who who did used to come to Adelaide a bit, but they. They used to play there a lot and um, be suburban, go-betweens, you know, I think, I don't know if the Triffids made it over to play at the Seaview, but we just used to live in the area and go there all the time and see all of the international touring acts that came out as well. So it was a sort of um, probably the size of the uh, electric ballroom or something, maybe a bit smaller. There were two venues within the building and um, so it there was a big enough room to have um, you know, bands from uh, the UK. I think Teardrop Explodes and all those sort of bands around that time came out um, and Iggy Pop and people, we, we could see them in there, but also then we all did our own shows where we'd have three or four bands on a night and we just, we used to rehearse there, we used to play there. It was just a fantastic uh, pub run by these really great people and sort of um, so we were sort of stuck in this one big suburb, all of us, and uh, and eventually, um, you know, Nick and the, the 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 band sort of made it out and went overseas, and so did the go-betweens. They went over fairly early on in the piece, and uh, we didn't leave Melbourne to go to London until '83. Right. But we already put out um, 
we'd put out uh, uh, an EP on a go go. Yes. Um, yeah, called Engine Shutter, and uh, that one, and um, and sent a tape over to <laughs> over to England, which made it eventually to uh, the desk of uh, Red Flame Records, who signed us up and to wow. bring us over. Because mm. that's one thing that's really boggled me, because at that period in the dear old UK, we were all sort of um, feeling angst-ridden and sort of a lot of unemployment. So there was a lot of people who were on sort of, yeah, signing on job seekers allowance and also the enterprise allowance, which a lot of people love because you could sign on that for a year and become a self-employed something. So anybody could put anything down. And the government were happy because it took the figure of unemployment down or certainly massaged the figure. So being unemployed, you know, did help a lot of bands in the UK. But that's just what I was going to say. Not many bands would have thought, right, I'm going to go from this place around to the other side of the world. So I always think it sounds quite extraordinary. And and so, I don't know about Brave, but, you know, all the bands that you mentioned and people like the Chills as well all sort of went, yeah. right, we're just going to go to London and hope that we'll find a bed. Well, everybody, I know, I know, well, we were very young. I mean, we were like 23, 24, but um, we just found it incredibly exciting. We loved it. But it's also when we really could see that there wasn't anywhere to go in Australia that, you know, that, that the the powers that be, the people that run the booking agencies and the, the venues were these kind of suburban, quite, you know, pretty heavy duty, rough places and, if you if we did go out there and support someone, we just <laughs> we were in fear of our lives because it was it was just that independent and and sort of yeah under the radar music was just not supported outside the inner city like yeah. really just a real weirdo. That's why we loved the idea in England that somebody like you know Morrissey could be a huge pop star because we just go that would never happen here, you know and. Uh, so we, that that could be one reason, I don't know, but yes. yeah, it was interesting landing in London and you saw the influence that, that people like, you know, the boys next door, birthday party and, um, you know, go-betweens had over there. And I was, that was, that was quite interesting too. Like they, they did seem to, um, yeah, influence people pretty much as soon as they got over there. That was really good. Yeah, well, I think actually as, as a fan, one is always looking for something a long way away. So there was obviously anybody from any other country and, and uh, you know, there was sort of, I remember the artists. I don't know if I really liked them, but because they were from New York, you kind of just thought, yes, I love that band or I love that artist. And obviously that thing from coming from Australia, you know, it seemed like every band coming from Australia were just really good. So you thought, well, I'll just like every band from Australia because they all seemed brilliant. And it was, you know, like the Triffids, the Go-Betweens and, and you know, the Moodists. And then there was the Hard-Ons. And, and uh, yes, it, it was kind of hard to sort of think, well, there they can't be any bad bands. Obviously, we'd all been listening to Men at Work during the early 80s as well. But but I'd saw them live, the Sword and David Bowie on the series Middle, Moonlight Tour, actually. Yeah. So, um and I think they supported yeah. Fleetwood Mac as well. So we did sort of also realise that there was that pure pop sound that you created, not you as a artist, yeah. but you as a country. But how did you, how did your relationship on Red Flame work out? Um, well, it went through. Uh, so I think we got a single review in um, a single review in NME and. Um, so then we were 
Oh, I'm just trying to remember here. <laughs> and then we sent a cassette. I think oh no, the cassette, the single review came from sending a cassette tape Tracy over. Pugh. And oh, was it Tracy Pugh? I'm, sorry, I'm getting <laughs> so Dave's helping me here. But um, yeah, I, I got a um, oh, sorry, we got uh, it went to um, what's the record company in? Uh, oh, anyway, it got passed on to Dave Kitson. Prompt at Red Flame from right. somebody who I think, yeah. And um, because we would have sent it to okay, Rough yeah. Trade. Rough oh, that's Trade. And uh, yeah, Dave Kitson actually came to Melbourne and met up with us and signed us up and bought us air tickets. <laughs> it was incredible. We were. And, you, uh, and that, must have, that must have been round. a fantastic oh. thing for your confidence as well to have somebody say, "Here's the tickets, let's go." Oh yeah, well I mean, I mean even just getting the the review <laughs> in the paper, we all nearly cut it. It was fantastic, and and yes, exactly. Like when when he he did that, we were just like, right, we're on our way. It was great. Yeah, it was amazing. And then he put us into the studio. As soon as we got to London, we were put to work immediately, and. Um, went out and recorded um, Thirsty's Calling at Livingston Studios um, and uh, also uh, the songs on Double Life. So it was us and Victor Van Viet who went on to produce um, Nick Cave and uh, PJ Harvey and lots of other people as well. He's now based in Berlin. But, um, yeah, it was amazing. It was really fantastic. And we were, uh, you know, he helped us find places to, to stay. And, I mean, we didn't have much money of course but I don't don't think we really needed any we were just really really happy to be over there well that's we absolutely. had a really great time I mean we did things like we you know our friends um in the go-betweens Lindy and Robert lent us their squat <laughs> stuff like that you know we got right into there was a lot of Australians there to who helped out as well yes and can you remember much about making Thursday's calling I just wondered what the process was like and how long it took um, well, we just went out to um, Livingston Studios, which was in um, N, N19 or N4, sort of out there somewhere in, um, I can't remember the suburb. So we just went out there every day and um, the studio was uh, completely different to the ones here. Oh, it was in Wood Green. Um, the, the studios here at the time were a bit sort of in 70s mode where they were carpeted uh, kind of boxes and everyone was separated and uh, everything sounded really dead and it wasn't the sound we wanted. We wanted huge drums like Led Zeppelin and huge bass. Um, so it was great to go to the um, to this Livingston in Wood Green because the drum booth was made of stone, you know. <laughs> like yes. It was this huge cave and the, the bass amp, the giant bass amp was put in a large um, – in an enormous hallway, so that sounded huge. So the sounds on it just didn't just were what we wanted. They really sounded great. Like it was, you just couldn't get that stuff here at that time, unfortunately. Yeah. So we were very lucky to to be able to go there, and um, yeah, yes. that was in uh, 1983. Yes. Mm. Well, absolutely. But your your sort of that particular year or 18 months must have been. Looking back on it, it must have felt like a blur because you you came over, you did the album, then you you also started touring Europe and the States, you know, with and mm. supported, you know, Public Image Limited on their mm. 
you know, one of their tours. And uh, yes, the John Peel session mm. as well. So did you, was it like 24-7, the band was just consuming every member? Um, well, pretty much. I mean, we did have a bit of downtime in London, but um, he got us working really, really quickly. Yeah, we we had to get the record out and we had to um, organise the tour. And, you know, we, we didn't sort of have a manager as such. So we sort of did a lot of that stuff ourselves as well. And, um, yeah, I guess we were working, yeah, really hard. Sometimes you look at the, the list of things you did and you just don't know how that happened. But, the, I mean, the, the Pill Tour was 85 back here right so that was a little bit later and um yeah we we did do a, a tv show in london and then went straight over to to america to tour and that was 85 as well yes because the one thing the other thing that was happening during that period was this sort of great political strife that was happening in, in this country unlike mm. now and um yes so we'd had the falklands and then there had been the miners strike and then red wedge and there was a sort of real divide between you know, people, as, as seems to always be the way. And so there, there was that sort of political movement happening in the UK with a lot of bands who are trying to sort of, I suppose, you know, encourage people to vote Labour and, uh, yes, kind of, I don't know, support the miners and stuff like that. Were you kind of aware of that scene? Because I know there was people like Paul Weller and the Style Council and mm. the Redskins and Billy Bragg. Obviously, Billy Brown. Oh yeah, well, we were sort of yeah somehow mixed up. There, there was friends of the go-betweens we met lived in Hackney, in you know a lot of the council, a lot of people we knew were moving over there to the council flats, and there was people I remember running into. Um, oh, there were there were just people who were interested in politics and. Um, uh, was it the flying something? There was a band of um, guys who all sang. Uh, what who the, were political? Not who the flying. The flying pickets. Maybe, yeah. I think I met up with. You know, they were in, around in that scene too. And there was also that the pub in um, in Isling, in sort of Highgate, around High, the corner, Highbury Corner. That was like a squat pub, and a lot of. Um, you know, a lot of those sort of bands played in there as well. Yes. So, I can't remember the name of that pub, though, do you? It was like a, a pub that was open for many years in the Hackney and I know the George Roby, but I can't remember. It was on High Street and it was right up near Highbury Corner. Yes. And uh, it was just shut for so long, people just <laughs> took it over and it actually, because of the squatting laws in London, which were fantastic, um, <laughs> and enabled people to take over places and then, you know, um, it took a while for you to have to leave. I think that place was open for a very long time. It's terrible. I can't remember what the name of it is. but um, Yes. But then, hmm. then when you sort of started to sort of make the second album or your next EP... That was in sort of 85, wasn't it, after you'd done quite a lot of touring and had gone back to Australia for a period of time and did more John Peel sessions. So how was the, how were you sort of coping? Because the one thing I've noticed doing these interviews with bands is that mostly they have a five-year narrative to the, to the day, to the day. You know, they get together, you know, and they have about 12 months kind of rehearsing and playing. And then John Peel would play, you know, a single. They'd do a John Peel session. They'd do the, you know, an album. Things were going really well. Then the second album, things were a bit tricky. If anybody ever toured America, they came back normally kind of broken and that was like the end of the band. So how did, how, how was it sort of towards the kind of 80, the next, that next period from sort of 86 to 87? Oh, well, you know, the people, um, 
it sort of it did get sort of harder and harder. I did, I think the window might even be smaller than that <laughs> for breaking through, and perhaps we we didn't take advantage as well, and um, maybe red flame got into some difficulty. I'm not sure, uh, but we uh, I think um, first of all Mick Turner. I think when we came back to Australia, Mick Turner just sort of didn't want to come back again and, and wanted to go on and do something else. And then eventually Chris Walsh, the bass player, sort of came back and, and, and um, just – it was just – it wasn't more, it wasn't like a big band bust-up or anything. It was just like um, it be, did become difficult to get sort of – we could go to Europe and tour, um, but we couldn't um, – I think uh, Red Flame, yeah, because of their difficulties, we just couldn't put out any more records, and so we had a we sort of broke up, and um, then uh, we Dave and I stay and Steve stayed in London, and um, we had already through the go-betweens, I think, hooked up with Malcolm Ross and Dave McClymont, who had been in uh, Joseph K. Malcolm was and uh, Orange Juice, and we made a couple of EPs with them. Oh, excellent! Yes, yeah. my God. So you were so you were sort of indie royalty, really, at this rate, weren't you? <laughs> oh, actually, before that, we made one on Creation <laughs> Creation Records. We did one EP. I'm just looking at it now. I've got it here. That had Mick Harvey and Rob McComb and Adam Peters on it, and um, yeah, that was that was eighty. God, that was eighty five too. Bloody hell. Um, and uh, <laughs> then after that, we made a few uh, EPs yes. on labels with um, Dave McClymont and uh, Malcolm Ross, yeah. Well, that's pretty, yeah. I mean, you were definitely sort of... Um, but then did you have a moment where in 87, did you sort of feel the end was coming? Um, well, we sort of, yeah, things ground to a halt and uh, we... Uh, we just started to – I think we had this situation around then um, when uh, Dave, Dave and I didn't have any uh, – you know, we had to renew visas and, you know, because we weren't um, – you know, we didn't have patriality. We had to sort of try and get another visa and um, eventually um, – and anyway, in the meet, we sent our, our passports off to the Home Office and didn't see them for two years, so we ha- we couldn't really go anywhere. And we, um, so we sort of had, you know, had to get work and and just be, you know, in London and work and pay rent and stuff. So we we couldn't really get out and play that much. And um, that, uh, I yeah. So the band had broken up by that. Well, you know, we had weren't doing anything by that stage, and um, so what eventually happened was uh, I got really sick of not playing, so I just started um, answering ads in the Melody Maker <laughs> and and turning up to um, and playing, or you know, either auditioning or um, eventually playing with another band. And Dave sort of decided he wanted to become like a singer songwriter under his own name. Yeah, and and then we. Um, we approached uh, uh, Fire Records, which is I know similar to Red Flame, but um, <laughs> just in name. And uh, uh, when um, when we did get a, oh, I'd met Gordy Blair, who is a bass player, Irish bass player, in one of the bands I had auditioned with, and um, Dave asked him and um, me and uh, Louis Vores and Malcolm Ross if 
we could form a band and play sort of Dave's songs. So then, we, and uh, we got Barry Adamson to produce that one, and so we made a an EP for Fire Records then. Yes. And, um, yeah. Yeah. That. And how is it? And because I did an interview with Barry uh, last year or this year, mm. and um, he just kind of brought out a compilation of 40, to mark his 40, 40 years in the business, I suppose. Um, mm. What was it like working with Barry? Oh, Barry was fabulous, yeah. I think we met him when he had, um, you know, very early on played with Nick and uh, um, uh, Bad Seeds, and, uh, yeah, he, we, we just got on really well. I think um, Dave, um, Dave also wrote... Uh, the liner note for Moss Side Story, and uh, then we sort of became friendly. And then Dave asked if he would um, produce the Dave Graney with the Coral Snakes at his Stone Beach EP, and uh, Barry did so. Yeah, it was great working with him. He was fantastic. Yes, yeah. he's got a great mm. bass sound. We talked a lot about Lemmy from Motorhead. Actually, we were both really. Yeah. Is he like Lemmy? Space. Yes, we all love Lemmy's Space, don't we? Let's uh, face it, Motorhead, what a band. Um, <laughs> so look, that yeah, comes up. So you obviously kept in, in music, because uh, the other thing, because actually it's quite interesting, um, having done this show for, a, for quite a few years now, because a lot of people talk about three bands. Well, they talk about four, actually. So that that's sort of, I'm sort of arguing with myself. They always mention the, the orange juice, but then they also mention the Dream Brides, the go-betweens and the Smiths has been hugely influential and um, yeah. which is kind of it's kind of interesting but with quite a few of those bands when the band finished they a lot of mem- those members just kind of gave up music completely and got a day job yeah. and um, and I just wondered did you sort of keep playing music and trying to, to make it go make it go of it oh we do yeah we play all the time and we've just I've, I think I've played on over 40 albums Dave and I have us together, including the Moodus and stuff, have made over 30. Um, yeah, we uh, we were able to come back and have um, a kind of another another career here in the 90s with um, Dave Graney and the Coral Snakes and um, had um, some success with that here. I mean, I mean, it's interesting just talking about Moodus because here – there's not not a lot of memory of the Moodus here. So I only ever talk about the Moodus when I speak to someone in the UK. It's really funny um, because then in the 90s, like um, Dave won like an ARIA award, which is our, uh, I'm not sure, Brit Pop, I suppose, award for male artist. And, um, yeah, we had three albums that were in the uh, top ten sort of here. yeah, so we, we, we were touring and doing um, festivals and things like that in the 90s here. And um, and because we were able to uh, – we were with a major record label and we had we were on television, uh, we, we can still maintain a career because of that, because people know who we are basically. These days it's a lot harder for, for younger groups because there is no sort of uh, TV exposure. There's not a lot of even newspaper or magazine exposure that um, uh, yes. you really need to have that sort of longevity. But, uh, we, yeah, we're very lucky. We've always um, – but we do all – we have always kept working, yeah. Yes, because the other thing that sort of gets a lot of bands, especially that that sort of – when I was talking about that indie world, which was kind of the glory years of 
roughly 83 to 87. The one thing that really finished a lot of bands off, apart from having five years and thinking, we still haven't made any money and we've all fallen out with each other and things are getting a bit rough, which is, you know, enough. But there was the other, the other aspect is that sort of musical trends changed. So you had that period in the late 80s where dance became such a big thing and the rave culture yeah. and ecstasy. So suddenly indie bands were like, you know, we want, you know, we want to dance, we want the Happy Mondays, we want the Soup Dragons, we want, you know, um, the Stone Roses and, and to get off our faces on drugs. And then when that sort of, I mean, that sort of uh, has kept slightly going, but then you had grunge as well. And then had you had Britpop. So did you sort of, during that period, sometimes, uh, you know, like certain bands go, God, if we'd only just kept it together a bit, we could have really made it in the Britpop world. Did you ever sort of look at that scene and think, oh, actually... Mm-hmm. This could have been us. Well, some sometimes I think you know maybe um, the the fact that we did have to leave because we had, <laughs> unfortunately, we had uh, yeah we had an album just about to come out when we had to leave the UK, um, and we didn't make it back for a while later. So um, yeah, that that's that certainly does go through your mind what would have happened if um, if we didn't have to go, if we stayed there and we really worked that album and and uh, worked it through properly in the UK. But, you know, on the other hand, we came back and did all these other things here. So <laughs> yes. you never know, I guess. It's, it's really hard to know. We did have a lot of, by that point, a lot of um, sort of friends and people we worked with for a long time, like Bladen Butcher, the fabulous photographer, you know, Chris Carr, publicist and people like that that we knew in London. So it would have been interesting for us to 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 see what, yeah, exactly how that would have panned out. But obviously, you know, who yes. knows? It's, always, mm. it's just one of those great moments. Because actually you did do a hell of a lot of work after the moodist, really, didn't you? I sort of, yes, like you were saying, I mean, I suppose a lot of people like me kind of remember that period. And then you think, oh, yes, there's all this other work that sort of like is probably sold a lot more records and um, mm. was, was kind of a, you brought out a lot more material, really. So, yeah, it's kind of it's kind of amazing just that because a lot of times people get a bit, I suppose, a bit jaded and a bit fed up and, and having been, mm-hmm. you know, people getting ripped off, just feel like I just don't want to do that again because it's such a murky industry. So did you manage to sort of navigate that that weird and wonderful world of publishing and ownership and admin? <laughs> yeah, well, I, I basically do all of all of that uh, and have done ever since the beginning. I've got, I've got hilarious books where I've got the list of all of the gigs we did, <laughs> even in the moodus. I was like that, which is really funny how much we got paid for everything and where all the money went. It's really um, – I'm not even sure why I did that. I think it's because my parents used to run a pub and my mum used to do it. So, um, yeah, so, um, yeah, I, I think, you know, we have run into lots of people who have become jaded and got very upset about things they'd signed in the past and – and stuff like that. But, you know, in one way, like I said before, it, without having the um, exposure you got from a major record label like we had in Australia, we would never, we might not have been able to continue on playing or have that, you know, people now know who we are. Like, you know, we can go out to play in a country town in Australia and people know, or Sydney or anywhere, you know, and um, you get that recognition and and that really comes from that high-end publicity and being on television and being, yes. no, you know, 
so you know in in a way that's what you, you you're getting <laughs> for signing signing those weird deals and you can't let it get to you you know in, in music scene it's always been like that and um and i mean in in, in a lot of ways these days things are Think I get more angry about what happens now, actually. Yes. Um, because at least back then you sort of knew where you stood. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? <laughs> you knew you knew where you stood. You knew you kind of, in a way, probably sort of knew it was going to happen. But now, um, with uh, these uh, large companies online who are, who don't have to pay for their content and stuff like that, that's that's kind of like the biggest ripoff of all, really. I know that is tricky. So bringing it up to date. 2019, one million years DC. You're still, you're still sort of out there making music. But this is, a, is this a sort of, this is, is this the second album that you've not done with Dave? Because obviously you don't know it. But I mean, with with a, just with this kind of name. That's what I mean. Um, no, I think no. Dave and I have done a few. Um, we did a duo, du, sort of a duo record, Hashish and like I mean, of course, you know. I, we both play on all of our records, but um, uh, yeah, the, there was one called Hashish and Liquor, where one one C, a double CD, so one CD was me and one was Dave's music. Um, so I've done a couple of solo projects and things as well, but as far as the duo one, I think there was that one, and then uh, Knock Yourself Out. There was one called Knock Yourself Out where I did a lot of the music, and Dave uh, just sort of laid down. And there's also Let's Get Tight, which was, yeah, so there's probably now about four of those ones where it's all sort of the project is done here at our, our studio in our house pretty yes, much. That's amazing. Yeah. And, I'm, and obviously it's, it's going well. I mean, over the years, when you sort of look back, have you sort of seen your own sort of musical development change a lot? I mean, you know, your influences, the style you play in, you know, things like that have come into your work. Oh yeah, well I bought a yeah I sort of bought a vibraphone a while back, and I play a lot of of vibes now, and uh, we we can go out and do uh, shows where I play that, and, or keyboards. You know, I've sort of got into playing that, especially when in about you know two thousand when we got Pro Tools and it's it started to be possible to um, yeah record at home. So um, yeah, and. And everyone else was doing it, so we sort of, sort of really got on top of yes. that, that studio um, scene. Because there's one person that everyone's very obsessed with, and I don't know if this is the same thing as the vibes, but Delia Davinshire, the woman who sort of made that sort of um, instrument where you just held your hand near it and it made a weird noise. What, the theremin? That's or? the one, yes, the theremin. I should have rehearsed that. Yes, yes. <laughs> At the workshop at the BBC and did the Doctor Who uh, theme and yes. So what yes. Are, what when you said vibes, what does that mean actually? Oh, um, a vibraphone is a large. Um, t- it looks like a table or an ironing board. It has pipes underneath the uh, keys, a uh, metal keys, uh, right. and, a, and a motor. So it's it's different to a xylophone or a marimba because it has this motor which turns these discs that are above the pipes underneath the metal um, keys and it gives a nice reverberation effect. Um, 
I don't know. Lots of people use them in the studio. It's usually just something that comes in in a chorus or, you know, they don't, they use, use it sparingly in rock music, but it's more of a jazz instrument, I guess. Yes, because you've always had, you know, that you've always created, you and the band have always created that fantastic vibe, isn't it? You know, which has been quite your trademark from the beginning. Yeah, well, we managed to. We went on tour um, with Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds in the 2000s, do, doing a trio where Dave played 12 string, I played vibraphone, and we had bass, which was like a, a setup that Tim Buckley used for one of his live records. And we thought that sounded really great. So we did all of our songs in that way. We actually did a re- recording of that as well. And um, so we are, yeah, we do try and uh, present things in different ways um, and it's not just sort of um, to do with, um, well, it is sort of sometimes to do with the size of the venue and things like that, but it's also that we want to just see what things sound like in the, the different setups. Yeah. Yes. And what, just lastly, what would you say to a, your 18-year-old self, or to put it another way, you know, what, what sort of bit of kind of wisdom have you picked up over the decades that you think, God, that, that's something that I would have, yes, I've really learned from being on this planet? Um, I think, well, you know, I think you do really have to enjoy playing. It's what, you know, a certain part of it, like, you know, if you want to be a musician, you don't want to be totally turned off. You have to find something in it that you really like doing. Like maybe it's just hunkering down in a studio and, and editing bits of music or if it's playing live or something. And I, I've realised I do prefer out of all of it, you know, playing live. So I do everything I can to be able to continue to do that. <laughs> and when you're a drummer, that's kind of interesting. It gets more interesting the older you get, of course. So you have to be really strong and you have to kind of um, – but, yeah, I, I would do anything to keep playing live. So, yeah, I think that's that's what you have to do with music. You just have to really find the, the bit of it you really love and try and keep doing that. Yes. And and would you say you're more John Bonham than Ginger Baker then? Oh, definitely. Yeah, I'm, I'm slow, like, yeah, having to play fast. Fast is difficult, and I, but at the same time, like, we're, we're – we're gearing up. I'm, I'm in a band with Harry Howard, who's uh, Roland's Roland's brother, and they were in these Immortal Souls together. And uh, we've been asked to back Kid Congo Powers when he comes to Australia for for a couple of shows. And uh, I've realised I'm going to have to get my fast my speed you know, chops up because <laughs> <laughs> he stuff's quite fast doing a couple of gun club songs and stuff like that so that'll be interesting but you've got to yeah it's a uh, drumming's funny it's like a mixture between being a musician and being an athlete or something well especially yes. at this interesting end of, of the game <laughs> i know that's quite and what is it about john bonham's drumming that is so extraordinary because everyone always says it's this unique quality that that often you know as a I'd have to confess a non-musician you think but why um I think well John Bonham is I think a modern example is the the um the guy who's not Dave I can't remember his name at the moment the guy who plays you know the queens of the stone age who's not the uh, Foo Fighters guy not Dave Grohl the other guy um they've there's he's they're simple sort of players. They're not too – they don't um, – I mean, every now and again, John Bonham will do some incredible triplet role that sort of blows your mind. But, you know, apart from that, he kind of keeps it 
fairly straight and and it's sort of slow it's in, it's incredibly powerful a lot of it and uh, he also the main thing was he recorded in you know a castle at the bottom of the stairs <laughs> it sounds amazing yes. and that's saying about you know recording back then here was awful when you know if you don't put a the drum kit in a big if you put a drum kit in a great big room like that it just sounds amazing and and I, I don't know whether yeah it, I think people find it really hard to get that sound even now you know a, apart from the fact that he's a really great drummer as well and so yeah I don't know he was uh, just just enormous great because i love charlie watts as well but you know he, he's a lot lighter in uh yes he was an interesting player but yeah john bonham was just incredible thunderous because um yes did you see the the wedding present film which was the one on the making of the album george mm. best because there was a lot of chat in that about the poor old drummer the click track the producer and and an awful lot of issues that came around the drummer and the click track. And, um, yeah, so how do, how do you sometimes cope with that kind of pressure? Because I know speaking to Lindy from um, the Go-Betweens, yes. it, it, yeah. thing, things can get a bit difficult and tense. Well, you know, in the 80s when there was a lot of Stock Aiken and Waterman sort of songs um, on the radio, I think... The, even the the more indie bands got sort of roped into you'll never getting you'll never get played on the radio unless your music is perfectly in time, which is just silly, um, because DJs will hear it and they'll know it's out of time, which I you know doubt. But um, and you know, you, people, lots of bands like the Triffers probably wouldn't have got played during the daytime on Radio <laughs> One anyway, you know. Yeah. But. Uh, the, the, they would when bands like that got signed to larger labels, they would demand certain things. They would get in producers who would then say, "Okay, you have to play with the click track," and and that's happened to me too. But luckily, sort of or unluckily, the Moodus never. <laughs> with the Moodus, we never signed with a um, a major, and we I was never subjected to that in the Moodus. Like later on in the nineties, it was still going on that you had to play to a click track, which was just horrible. <laughs> I hate it. Lots of drummers that got used to it and they don't mind. But um, I think it really, yeah, it, it sort of stuffed up some of that music that was created in the 80s because the beauty of it was that it wasn't perfectly in time and it was, you know, um, yeah, it was a, just a more of an indie sound and then that's what people liked about it, you know. So Yes, yeah. well, it's, it's definitely true what you said about DJs. I mean, if, if people like me, you know, I mean, I... I appreciate music, but I don't understand. <laughs> I, I wouldn't be able to pull it apart and understand it. So, so you know, with a lot of the indie bands I like, I mean, it was just never anything to do. I mean, it was the you know, it's the passion and the vibe and and certain things. I mean, it just wasn't about sort of that clean kind of metallic kind of sound that you know you had that. It was the kind of Trevor Horn and and you know, yeah, Stock Aikman and Waterman. Those kind of especially that Trevor Horn production sound, which is just. Horrible, actually, and I know that David Bowie, those albums he did in the eighties, that got re, they got re-engineered, um, re, you know, last year where they took out that eighties kind of vibe, and and they sound completely different and a lot better. I mean, they still weren't great albums, but you know, they certainly had improved a lot. 
Yeah, there was a lot of really, I mean, that stuff was fine if it had stayed in the top of the charts, top of the pops type world, but it, it just leaked too far into the other, you know, where we didn't really need all of that stuff anyway. So it's a shame because some of those records kind of, or a lot of things that were made in the 80s that don't stand up. It's kind of, or it sounds, they're too, yeah, they're, they're sort of too neat. Um, I don't know. It was a bit of a shame. Um, but the 80s and production, you know, when you think about it, it goes in, things come in waves, you know, and in the 80s you listen to, say, uh, <clears throat> I don't know, there's that Billy Joel song I heard the other day in a in a cafe, unfortunately, and the, the snare drum is like twice as loud as everything else, <laughs> you know. God, why would you need a snare drum to be that loud? It's weird. Yeah, yes. it was the flavour of and, you know, I don't know. It's a You'd very... have to ask a producer. <laughs> Why was I like that? I guess it was a fashion at the time. I mean, because obviously the, the other thing that's been quite interesting that I've noticed as a fan is this kind of 30-year-old, yeah, this, you know, a passing of time of around 30 years. Suddenly things that could get to you and thrown away or put in the recycling suddenly becomes kind of interest and heritage and wants to be archived. So have you managed to sort of do any of that for your musical world and especially the early years? Um, well, we have, um, do you mean like, well, here we have something called the Music Vault and we that, that was at the Arts Centre in Melbourne and they opened that recently with a kind of one of the glass cases had some of our memorabilia in it and uh, along with Roland Howard's guitar amp and guitar and Radio Birdman stuff and the go one of Lindy's dresses and <laughs> things like that people are looking back a little bit although <clears throat> and uh, some some of the people who are curating things kind of come from that that era so they know yes. they know that time. and uh, yeah there, there is a, a lot of people wanting to know know about that that sort of well, when uh, <clears throat> I mean the the pub rock scene is still really big in Melbourne, and Melbourne is an amazing live venue um, city. You know, we're that's why we live here. We get to play all the time here, and uh, and um, yeah, so it's a uh, it, it's sort of is still happening. Whereas in some places like Sydney, it's a kind of distant memory, <laughs> unfortunately. Yeah. So maybe more of that up there but um but but, yeah. all, but all the recordings you've done you've you've got archived and they're all nicely filed um yeah I guess so it's a bit hard to keep track we don't actually own all of them because there's so many um and you know you tend to sell them and then you go oh shit we have <laughs> we, we don't have one for ourselves but you know we know yes we have a, a list of um I'm sure we have lists of how many of everything we've done and stuff like that. Yes. And that's that's kind of one good thing about the digital world is it's easier to do stuff like that now. I just wonder because you've you've kind of kept a career going in music with the band and with, you know, Dave as well. I just wondered if you've sort of got footage so you might one day get tempted with one of those films like The Chills have got and L7, The Go-Betweens, even, you know, The Wedding Present and the album George Best. I just wonder if there's ever been any kind of interest. And even Peter from The Hard-Ons mentioned about sort of people being interested in making a film about the band. Yeah, well, th- yeah, there has been um, talk of some sort of thing like that, or a um, and a, a little a little bit of work done on it. Um, making, you know, it's hard to decide whether to 
you don't, I mean, it's sort of not, not something you want to be a uh, part of. It's not like you're my project, you know, so therefore you um, have to, you know, trust somebody else will want to do it and then you have to trust them to do it, you know, well, but, you know, it's out of your control. Yeah. Um, like the, the sort of go-betweens one was made by, a, you know, a, a, another a film director who um, loved the go-betweens and made it himself, sort of got funding and, you know, done all of that himself because making films is just so incredibly expensive and it's also time-consuming and you have to rely on so many people. Um, I, you know, I feel, uh, I really feel for filmmakers. <laughs> I don't, I don't think I could stand it mm. having to work, you know, work, um, with so many other people. Um, but yeah, there has been sort of some talk of, of, of that. And we've certainly got a lot of sort of footage <laughs> things, yes. you know, made, um, a lot of videos and, and stuff in the, in the nineties and two thousands. And, um, yeah, there would be a lot of a lot of stuff. Dave's, Dave also is a, a author. He's written, he's got three books now as well. So he's kind of, uh, a lot of our, our history is in, in those two. Excellent. Well, that's fantastic. Well, look, Claire, this has been yes. fantastic. Thank you ever so much. I might it's go very, to... very rare to be asked to do an interview, so it's very nice. Thank you very much. I no, do that's... like talking. Oh, that's fantastic. Well, I'm I'm really pleased. You know, it's like, like I said, you know, I've sort of thought, you know, if I I sort of, yeah, once I realise there's that band, you think, oh, my God, I need, you know, I can't, I can't pretend I don't know that band exists. You know, it's like, you know, just wanting to, um, yeah, have, have as many bands as possible that you can think, yes, I've done, I've done everything that I can. It's a weird habit. It's a weird habit, but it's brilliant. But, but I'll tell oh, you when I put this. Oh, it's really great, I reckon, because you know, I mean, you were just talking about archiving things. That's what this this is is sort of as well. Yes, it's, yeah. I suppose it is a little bit the story of, of the band and and the musical journey. But I'm just it's so pleased that it's sort of uh, you managed to sort of keep the groove going and um, not get sort of tripped up too many times. I have to say, we we constantly think about our time when we lived in the UK and and yeah the older I get the more I miss living in London I just we both loved it so much it was just such a pity we had to come back (laughs) but I guess you do the odd tour on the odd few dates here and there yeah we we get over there a little bit yeah we have done we have tried to lately yeah the last sort of especially 10 years or so yeah, but um, yeah. If you ever do want to um, speak to Dave, he's probably um, got a, a lot more memories <laughs> about all that time. And so, you know, the, feel free to um, if you ever want to talk to him about anything. Yes, too. that would be fantastic. But I'm going to go to bed now. Absolutely, you must be exhausted. <laughs> I yeah. hope it's not getting too cold over there either. No, it's not too cold. It's just been a bit dark and a bit wet. But um, yes, a bit of rain. But anyway, it's not too bad at the moment. It's um, it's fine. It's just when the clocks change in two weeks' time, we'll be going. Oh no! Why did no. they do that? Anyway, dream. Oh, oh well, you'll get used to that quickly. We will. We will. Anyway, look. Have a lovely day and a lovely weekend. Oh, you too. Yeah, very nice to talk to you, David. Thank you very much. Okay, take care there. See you later. Yeah. Bye. Bye. Bye.